Well, hello, good afternoon and welcome to this latest Cato Institute book forum today on October 30th. Uh, my name is Ryan Bourne. I occupy the R. Evan Scharf Chair for the Public Understanding of Economics here at the Cato Institute. Um, and I'm really delighted to have you all with us to discuss Deirdre McCloskey and Art Carden's new release, Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, How the Bourgeois Deal Enriched the World. Now, this is an unusual book forum for me today, uh, not just because it's the first one I've hosted from my bunker here at home, uh, but because it's the first time I've actually chaired a book forum for Cato on the actual book release date. So it's especially exciting that we have the two authors here with us when I'm sure they're facing significant demands on their time. And this really is a great book. Um, I picked it up, finished it in just two sittings. I had an advanced copy and it's just littered with wonderful examples and covers so much ground. Um, but I'm not going to go in and spoil it for you with my own pricey. Um, I'm going to pass over to the authors uh, with the question, what is your book about? And we'll, we'll have a discussion for 20 to 30 minutes. And then I want to open it out into as much Q&A as possible with you guys. And, and just a gentle reminder, you can submit questions through a variety of different platforms today. Um, you can submit them on the video link on the Cato website. Uh, we've got YouTube, Twitter, and, and Facebook viewers too. But before we get to that, let me uh, briefly introduce the speakers. Uh, Deirdre McCloskey probably needs no introduction for a Cato audience. She's a distinguished professor of economics, history, English, and communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I remember reading Deirdre's books um, on economic history back as an undergraduate at university. She's, of course, also the author of hundreds of articles on economic history, uh, economic theory, rhetoric, philosophy, feminism, and law. And most recently, she wrote her bourgeois trilogy uh, about how we got so rich, uh, why so many theories about that great takeoff in living standards are mistaken, and the importance of culture, specifically uh, rhetoric or ideas, as the key ingredient to our recent economic success. This latest book has been described by her as a more popular version of, of that other scholarly work, and it's been written beautifully with co-author Professor Art Carden um, of Samford University's Brock School of Business. He's a senior fellow with the American Institute for Economic Research, a regular contributor to Forbes, um, and he specializes in research on mass market retailers, economic history, and the history of economic ideas. Um, so just kicking it off uh, with you both, Art and Deirdre, we seem to live in a profoundly pessimistic time um, that COVID is wreaking uh, havoc on the economy and our liberties. There are difficult trade-offs everywhere, but this book is profoundly optimistic. Why are you so optimistic about the future? And I'll go first with uh, Professor Art Carden. Why am I optimistic about the future based on this book? Because the last 250 years or so have been so radically unlike anything that came before it. And moreover, we live in an innovative age where we value entrepreneurs like Jeff Bezos, like the late Steve Jobs, like Bill Gates. Um, this is a really big problem, obviously, but we've had really big problems before and we have been able to over overcome them. We're pushing hard at the cutting edge of innovation, not just in treatment, but also at the cutting edge of adapting to life under, uh, adapting to life under, under COVID and the related uncertainty. 
So um, while I don't know necessarily what the future will hold, um, I definitely expect my kids to have higher standards of living than I do. Now, Deirdre, one of the big things that's come through your work uh, is the importance of a culture of ideas in fostering an environment by which people can have a go, try to better themselves and their lives. And you really write um, powerfully about how that uh, allowed and facilitated the industrial revolution and then the, the great takeoff. Um, when you see so much pessimism around these days and so much anti-capitalist uh, rhetoric, aren't you concerned yeah. that those same forces that fostered that innovation could just as well take it away? Yes, I am concerned, and that's why I wrote the book. <laughs> um, it turns out that in pessimism, cells that uh, it's if you want to have a great success in the publishing world say that the world is coming to an end and there's this tiny thing that I favor that you can um, do but in fact the history of the last couple of entries as as art points out is cause for celebration it's an astonishing increase um, three a three thousand percent increase in real income per person since uh, around 1800 and it came out of uh, out of optimism it it came out of making people free or freer, slowly, more and more free. And then they were, the ordinary folk were, were allowed, got, perm, got, perm, got permission, as the English say, to have a go. And that's what caused the, this enormous increase in income per head. Uh, and so, yes, I'm, I, I'm concerned with the sort of eternal threat of nationalism and socialism. And if you like those, maybe you'll like, you'll like national socialism, 1930 style. But all we can do is preach. All we can do is keep pointing out the facts of the matter that our, our life has improved even since the year 2000, even since 19, 19, uh, 1960, even since 1900, even since 1800. The world income per head, COVID aside, is increasing at about 2% per year, which is revolutionary over a couple of long generations. And just just coming back to the purpose of this book in particular, obviously you've yeah. extensively made this argument through your bourgeois trilogy. How does this book fit into uh, in relationship with those with those previous tomes? Well, it, it, I think uh, art can can can. 
left, who worked. He brought this, um, I must say, charming craziness <laughs> to the exposition of these three big tomes. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll show you. Here, here's, here's one of them. Look how thick it is. <laughs> and, and it's three of these things um, from 2006, 2010, 2000 2016. And I think these are great books and I want you to buy them. You don't have to actually read the books, but buy them uh, if you don't mind. <laughs> and, and that's the trouble. They're scholarly, they're rather broad in, in their, uh, their concerns, which is confusing to some people. And Art has done a really good job in making it, the, these three volumes, intelligible. Uh, and I thank him very much for that. Art, have you got anything to add to that per purpose of our book? I really appreciate that. Um, when you first asked me to collaborate, I thought, oh yeah, let's let's do volume four. And so I, I wanted to kind of dive in and do something really fancy and hoity-toity and scholarly and whatnot. And after, yeah, right. It, you, you're right to shake your finger. Um, and you know, after a while, it became clear that wasn't the kind of project that we needed uh, that we needed to write. Um, through this entire thing, I've been thinking, you know, we, we bring the world good tidings of great joy, which are that we that life has never been this good, and life yeah. will almost certainly only get better for our children, our grandchildren, etc. Again, when it, when I think about the standards of living that my kids can face or that my kids can look forward to, they may not be as high as they would have been in like a perfect world where every policy had been right and, and, and all that, but they're going to be much, much higher, I think, than they are now. And what we call poverty in the modern world is something that basically has no meaning if we look at it yeah. in historical and geographic perspective. If you're living in the United States or Western Europe or Canada or somewhere like that, you're one of the richest 1% of people who's ever walked the face of the earth. And I think we yeah. need to we need to steward that well. And we need to steward that wisely. Well, but but yeah, so just there, yeah. But there is, I should comment, a certain indignation that that, that comes out when when people like Art and I say that. True though it is, um, they say, but, but well, that just shows you don't care about the poor. On the contrary, if mm -hmm. we could persuade people to, to have a certain optimism and to uh, accept the amazing results of entrepreneurship and of having a go, the poor would be the are, have been, and will be the chief beneficiary. So, so it, it, it sounds at first like we're kind of hard-hearted and to, to heck with the poor. But no, no, that's not the case. Quite the contrary. I think both Art and I have been motivated in our, 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 our interest in economics and pursuing it precisely in helping the poor. As Art expressed it, one of the main um, characters in, in Les Mis is this unspeakably poor French, French woman 
from around 1830, and it's she who we care about. Yeah, I was going to pick up on that exact topic, actually, because I remember being struck when I read Thomas Piketty's first book a number of years ago. There was a line in there, I'm going to quote it, where he said, the poorer half of the population are as poor today as they were in the past. So we often see this conflation of inequality yeah. and, and poverty. And our, yeah. one of the things that is beautifully written in the book is this comparison between that Le Miserable character, Fontaine, I believe, against a woman in modern day Birmingham, Alabama. So why don't you just explain what you were trying to get at with that example and the, the big differences in their lives and livelihoods today? I think in, in the grand scheme of things, and I'm glad you brought up uh, Piketty's argument because a lot of people do conflate inequality and poverty. And one of the reasons why people get mad when Deidre and I write stuff like this or when we talk about stuff like this is that I don't think either of us really care about inequality as such. Um, I don't think either of us think that inequality is morally important. What matters is not how much Fontaine is like the average person in France or how much she's like rich Jean Valjean after he's he's made his way, um, but rather what is her absolute material standard of living. And that example came from um, my wife and I went to see Les Mis in Birmingham about six years ago. I love the, love the show, love the book. Um, I think it's an amazing artistic achievement. And there was an advertisement in the program saying there are women like Fontaine all over Birmingham. And in my cold-hearted economist way, I thought, no, there aren't. No, there aren't. And it mentioned the you know, median income for a household headed by a single mother with two children in Birmingham and at the time 2014. And it was by a multiple of five higher than per capita income in France in the 1820s around the time that Les Miserables is taking place. So it's not just that the average single mother in Birmingham is better off than Fantine. It's she's better off by an order of magnitude. And that's why the bourgeois deal matters. That's why economic growth matters. Um, you know, I'm going to be fine if the economic growth rate is zero for the next 50 years, say. Um, a lot of rich people are going to be fine. Um, we care about this because we want Fontaine and Cosette and their, and their descendants to have the kinds of standards of living that we have. And indeed, my guess is that if you trace our family trees back far enough, it's not going to be that far before you hit people who are in, in, in exactly that position. As far yeah, I think as... But if, if, you, if you care about inequality, why should we care about it country by country? That, that's, I, and I have never understood that. In fact, in the last 30 years, international inequality, if you, if you th think of it person by person, which from the ethical point of view seems to me the correct way, if you think, as Art and I do not, that inequality per say is ethically to the point, then you, you would have to concede that person by person inequality has sharply declined in the last 30 years. Now, why is that? Because China and India are growing at fantastic speeds because both of them moved a little bit, sometimes more, sometimes less, towards the kind of economic policy that Art and I and you and Cato are in favor of. So even if you're an inequality maven and really think that's important, 
you should be in favor of the of what Art and I call the call the bourgeois deal. Leave us alone, and we'll make you rich mm. and equal. <laughs> yeah, Chris. Chris, Chris Edwards and I at Cato have written a number of times about how, you know, these inequality statistics that you see are really just a, a summary, a snapshot in time of the outcomes of millions and millions of transactions, trades, inheritances, right. policies, and that on their own, these figures don't really tell us anything interesting about their underlying causes or their desirability. Um, but I want to no, no, no. just shift gears, shift gears a little bit. Um, because in the book, you outline a whole range of kind of pessimisms that people have about the bourgeois deal um, from from you know, the traditional critiques um, from a kind of Malthusian perspective, right through to this idea that um, uh, capitalism is inherently, I know you don't like that word, Deirdre, but capitalism is inherently exploitative of, of the global South. So I want to ask probably quite a difficult question to you, Deirdre. What do you think the best critique what what is the most difficult one to counter when you're you know pushing back on the critiques of capitalism is it the, the kind of michael sandow arguments that capitalism and, and market activity can sometimes be corrupting is it something else is it the environmental impacts of of some development what's the most difficult one that really kind of presses at you when you're fighting back on this well that's a very good question to ask and Everyone should be asked it when they're when they're ma making a case. What part of the your opponent's case makes you the most uneasy? And maybe it's the it's the it's the Michael Sandel point. I I I speak of myself as a Christian liberal in the classical sense, and it's. And, and therefore, I believe that we owe the poor um, our concern, though, as we just finished saying, Art and I think that the best way to help the poor is to, um, is to allow economic growth to take place. But there can be, as Sandel argued, he argued it in a somewhat, well, not just somewhat, in a very simple-minded way, but, but there's, there's a point there. It can be corrupting if we, if we think that all that matters is how many toys you have. And there are great, there are temptations to that in the modern world. Uh, then you, then as we say, you lose the plot. And the plot, you, you don't have to express this in Christian uh, uh, terms, but I, I would, um, is the transcendent, whether it's the Chicago Cubs, is, which is also my transcendent, or it's God, or science, or art, or something you're, you can miss that. But I think, on the other hand, as I, I said in a review of with one of Sandel's books. Uh, this is very easy to exaggerate and come on, humans have always been corrupted by the appeal of material wealth, whether they're hunter-gatherers or 
early agriculturalists um, or uh, 19th century Swedish food peasants. Every, humans are that way. They want goods. They want more food. They want nice objects around them. So I, I, I think, um, well, again, I say we should preach against the reduction of the good of life to material goods. But on the other hand, if you're starving to death, you're not able to focus on, you know, um, Bach's cantatas. You're, you need to get the next meal. And so it's terribly important that the, that, that, that the bourgeois deal has spread to the rest of the world. And indeed, poverty in the world is falling like a stone. And this at least makes it possible for people to pursue the Fantine couldn't go to a well-stocked public library to improve herself, but now her, her descendants can. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's something that comes across powerfully in your work and some work of other scholars recently about how, you know, as human beings, we have a hierarchy of needs. And if we can actually uh, fulfill the basics with that huge takeoff in wealth, it actually allows us to be better custodians of the, the planet in environmental terms and a whole range of other things. Now, interest, interestingly, you get two conflicting kind of critiques of, of um, the market economy uh, at the moment, you get a pessimism from some people that uh, technological productivity growth is slowing down and that kind of dooms us to stagnation. And then on the other hand, you get people arguing that uh, we're about to see an AI revolution, which is going to um, kill off uh, millions and millions of jobs. Uh, are, what would you say to those who are coming at this pessimistically from a you know, growth is accelerating too much perspective. We can have too much of a good thing by uh, this AI stuff completely disrupting and upending our lives. The story that technology is going to destroy the world or that technology is going to take our jobs and leave nothing else to be done, is it's a story that people have told for generations. It's a story that was, it's a story that was false in the 18th century. It was false in the 19th century. It was false in the 20th century. Most of American workers were in agriculture in 1900. Today, that fraction is very, very small, and it would probably be even smaller if it weren't for agricultural subsidies. Um, and yet, we have more food than ever before and more employment opportunities than ever before. Um, one of the reasons why I think people hate economists is that when we talk, when we speak in a, in a, in a uh, an optimistic way about the technological future, we can never say precisely what specific things people will do if this job goes away, or if that job goes away, or if the other job goes away. But something I'm, I'm noticing, we, we just moved into into a new house not long ago, and, and we're we're um, trying to deal with all sorts of smart devices, a smart doorbell, and smart light switches, and smart this, and smart that, and smart the other thing. Um, the division of the division of of physical labor, I think, is is giving way to um, an ever more important division of actual knowledge. Where day in and day out, I, I keep thinking, 
you know, I wish, I wish it were easier to pay someone to tell me how to do this. Or I wish it were, I wish I could just give someone a hundred bucks and say, make this work the way that I want it to. And, and that, that's happening to a certain degree, but that I think is where a lot of, uh, uh, that I think is where a lot of, um, uh, potential future progress is coming from. I, I'm not worried about AI leaving no work for people to do. Well, I'm yeah, not either. Family. But, but there, there, there's a very important Sorry. fact that most, most students in the economy don't know and should know. Every year in an economy like the United States, mm -hmm. every year, 13% of the jobs disappear forever. Now, that sounds impossible. But it's true. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, um, uh, arts example of agriculture is, is the obvious one over a long period of time. 80% uh, of Americans in 1800 were on farms, 80%. Now it's, it's, it's 2% and falling. But the, the, the companies move away from their present location or they move out of that industry entirely, or they go bankrupt, or they get they become obsolete. In in two thousand, hear this. There were one hundred and fifty thousand people employed in video stores. So I like art. I think it's just completely unreasonable to have this worry about AI. Yeah, that's a very powerful point, Deirdre, and something that I've thought about when we were, you know, discussing the response to the COVID crisis, where the initial uh, kind of thinking between the, you know, through the activities of many governments around the world was to try and keep the economy of February 2020 kind of preserved in in aspect yeah. for as long as possible until this crisis passed, yeah. completely ignoring the fact that, you know, even if this crisis hadn't happened, we would have seen incredible churn in many of these industries. Now, I'm conscious of the fact that we have a lot of questions filing in already. Um, some of them kind of push back on the optimism. So I'm going to put some of them uh, to you here. Um, so the first question is from Travis on Facebook. He says, um, I'm interested to hear your opinion on what has caused an increasing amount of the gains of, of globalization. Uh, to go into the hands of the very wealthy uh, in, in recent years. Um, are there any problems, any smoking guns that might instruct us on, on why that has happened? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Is it something we should be indifferent to? So uh, I'll throw that one over to you first, Deirdre. Well, no, I, I, I think it's false. <laughs> um, I think it's not true. And... It, although we keep saying it, we keep saying, oh, the rich are getting get, getting richer, the top 1% are gaining, and the rest are losing, and so forth. And that's, that's just not so. And it's especially not so if you focus on individuals instead of these numbers inside a particular community. Um, and in any case, Sheer inequality. Look, do you resent it that a that a baseball player is paid three million dollars a year? Well, why is he paid three million dollars a year? 
because he entertains people to the to that extent. Do you resent it that the Beatles, to speak of my own generation, made a lot of money? Um, the way people make money in our society, our society, is by pleasing other people. That's how you do it. Now, if it were true that the reason rich people are getting rich is that they're stealing from other people, then I have a completely different attitude. If they're stealing or using the government to steal, which is an easier option in some ways, then that should, then I, I join my friends, say, and I have a lot of friends on the left in, in opposing that. But in the meantime, no, I, I don't think that inequality is the problem. I think the problem is tyranny and poverty. Question the idea that the benefits of economic growth are going primarily to the top of the income distribution. Um, one thing that yeah. made a big impression on me when I was in graduate school, um, working with John Nye, and we use an example of his in the book, was the idea that the characteristics of the goods available to the very poor are coming more closely to resemble the characteristics of the goods available to the very rich. So we used an example, one that we borrow from that we borrow from John, asking, you know, imagine that you were invited to a king's feast a few hundred years ago. So I, I just finished reading King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table with our youngest, and it talks about these great feasts and they have meat and whatever. Um, you know, we think about all the stuff that you would have at this great feast in a thousand or eleven hundred or twelve hundred or well before that, and then compare that to what you could get at at uh, Golden Corral, uh, which is a buffet <laughs> chain. Buffets are buffets are kind of closed right now, but what you would get at Golden Corral or what we could get at virtually any buffet restaurant for fifteen bucks in the United States is almost certainly better in quantity, in quality, in every possible way than whatever was providing King Henry VIII with his 5,000 calories a day. Um, right. I think that that the stuff that's available to Hoi Polloi is changing very, very rapidly. Well, it's not really changing that rapidly at the very, very top of the income distribution. Um, I can't imagine yeah. that a $650,000 bottle of scotch is really thousands and thousands and thousands of times better than a thirty or forty dollar bottle of scotch, and um, <clears throat> sorry, go ahead. No, who, who who's speaking? <laughs> oh, sorry, I apologize. I, I thought uh, I thought someone was I thought someone else was coming in. So. No, just finish your thought. Uh, we're all good. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yes. So, um, so I think the technological characteristics of the goods that are available to the poor are changing very rapidly relative or much more than the goods that are available to the very rich. So right now, so my students who are in Econ 201, some of whom are watching this for extra credit, um, should know about the video store example that Professor McCloskey offered earlier. And I was looking at, I was looking at inflation adjustments since the fifties the other day, and we paid less in nominal dollars for a 50-inch ultra-high-definition TV that is, you know, can hook up to Alexa and all sorts of other stuff than somebody would have paid for a 24-inch black-and-white TV set in 1955. 
And that's simply staggering. If you go back to, imagine going back to, well, and Deidre, you were there in 1955. You imagine someone, someone showing you a flat screen, 50 inch, ultra high def, internet connected, blah, 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 TV. And say, and saying in 1955, you can have this for about 20 bucks. Yeah, that's or, right. Yeah, you, yeah. The, 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 um, that the rich are able to buy more pearl 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 necklaces you see that I, like joe biden i i have a stutter um this by the these by the way are not actual pearls <laughs> that then lies at the bottom of their jewelry box is not as significant as improved food and larger amounts of food and cheaper uh, uh, um, uh, uh, housing and larger uh, apartments, which is characteristic uh, of the last half uh, half century or indeed the last couple of hundred years. Well, that feeds us quite nicely into our next question because you know, I, I kind of looked um, a couple of years ago in a paper for Cato at the, the cost of living for the poor uh, in the US. And it's remarkable how many uh, government policies actually inflate the cost of living for the poor, whether it be protectionist tariffs on uh, clothes and food or, um, or or whether it be housing and, and zoning, land use planning laws, raising the, the price of, of uh, housing services. So that brings us to this next great question from Tom Selman. He says, your material optimists but are you political optimists? Is it safe to believe yeah. that the great political ideas of the past will be able to overcome these socialistic and nationalist forces? Or do you distinguish between the inevitability of economic growth from the frailty yeah. of political ideas? Well, I must say that that's why Art and I and you and everyone else, that's why we, we really write our books because we're trying to fend off the, um, the, the, the uh, populism or socialism or, you know, take the case of socialism. One of the problems is that we all grow up in families and families are socialist enterprises. And so, as a teenager, it's very easy to believe, or as a young adult, that the solution to social problems is to bring everyone into one big family called a social democracy. And it, 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 it hasn't worked very well. It's not the end of the world, but it's not, doesn't work as as well as it should for the poor but it's the 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 analogy of the country to a family is a very strong one if you grow up on a farm say uh, a dairy farm where you have to milk the cows two times a day 365 days a year then you don't have this attitude. Then you don't suppose that 
well, everything would be okay if we just brought everyone and, and put them on, on the farm and, and shared. Um, but fewer and fewer uh, young people are having that experience. So we're going to have to argue against socialism forever. We're going to have to keep making the point that uh, that this family, as, as much as we all love and, 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 and admire families, although sometimes they're not so good, but ordinarily they're, 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 they're fine, um, we can't use the family analogy perfectly, at least, for the society as a whole. It works very poorly because it's easy to um, corrupt. And, and indeed, it's impossible in a in, in a family you can know where the bread is in the kitchen but in a in a in a in a great society you don't know where the bread is until the market uh, um, uh, 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 signals have produced it yeah that's a great point um and often we kind of you know often even some libertarians fall into the the trap of not distinguishing between market activity that's kind of commercial activity and the creation of other civil society and family institutions that play yeah. non important non-market roles in enhancing our welfare so that's that's a very that's a great point um we have to move on to some more sorry go on Deirdre. No, no, that's, that's okay. I'm um, going to move on to a next the next question, which is from uh, Robert Perry. Uh, he says, "How do you prevent and punish uh, greed, uh, evil, abuse, monopolies, and corruption in your bourgeois free enterprise world?" Um, Art, how do you I'll do that? Throw that to you. So that, that's a that's a fascinating question, and uh, in a lot of ways, we're not doing ideal theory. Um, we're we're looking at the world as it's developed in the last couple of hundred years and saying it's been pretty good, saying it's been sort of okay. Um, and it, sort of the older I get, the more I realize that that utopia is probably not an option. Um, to kind of take some of these some of these turn by turn, I don't really worry that much about monopoly. I don't worry that, that much about monopoly. Um, of course, the Justice Department just brought a case against Google, um, just as they brought a case against Microsoft when I was an undergraduate. Uh, I get a bit of an eye twitch, and I told my students, like, my, my head hurts when I hear people referring to a company like Google as a monopoly, when literally that very same day, I switched my web browser from, uh, or excuse me, I switched my search engine from, from Google to DuckDuckGo almost immediately within Google's web browser specifically within uh, within Google Chrome. Um, so I, I think that the problem of monopoly is 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 vastly overstated. And I think that the the economic history that is or the economic history of monopoly is or it shows that antitrust is in a lot of ways kind of an anti-competitive endeavor. Um, the learned hand decision in the Alcoa or in the US versus Alcoa case, he said all of the things that he said that Alcoa was doing, he said they're hustling to fill every void in the market. They keep driving the price down. They keep expanding output. That's exactly what the competitive model predicts, and it's exactly the opposite of what we would expect 
in a monopolistic market. So um, I, I also remember in the latter part of the last decade, reading several articles claiming that MySpace had to be regulated as a public utility because it was a natural <laughs> monopoly. That nobody yeah. would be able to compete with MySpace um, in yeah. the social media space because of network effects and things like that. So I'm not that worried about it. Greed, greed is a more interesting question. And to get to a point that someone raised earlier about some kind of criticisms of the, the argument that we're making here, um, one of the criticisms of, that people make of, of a market economy is that a market economy doesn't have a purpose as such. Um, rather, in a free commercial society, in a market economy, people are able to come up with their own purposes and they're able to pursue those, own, those purposes as long as they don't interfere with, uh, with anybody else. When I think about something like greed, um, I would agree that it's it's obviously not a virtue. It's a vice. But I think if anything, a richer commercial society becomes a more humane society. And again, there's a lot of evidence yeah. to suggest that societies that uh, have more experience with market norms tend to become, again, like I said, more humane. They tend to become uh, more generous. They tend to become uh, they, they tend to develop better sharing norms. And things like that. So, um, so I, I would, I would argue that that if anything, if anything, the commercial bourgeois society is a response to and a solution to problems of greed. Oh, I argue and that. If you want to, some in 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 the in the first volume of this um, trilogy in two thousand and six called the bourgeois virtues, and I said, look. Greed is terrible. Greed is a mortal sin. But prudence modified with other virtues such as love and faith and temperance and courage and justice is not greed. Greed is prudent. Well, let, let me be somewhat partisan about it and say greed is Donald Trump. Greed is having only prudence in mind and not having anything else in mind. And there's there's no evidence at all that, occur, as, as Art said, there's no evidence at all that a commercial society makes that worse. Yeah, that, that's, that's another great point. And if you want more uh, information, by the way, historical context to the current debates about antitrust policy, there's a paper called, Is This Time Different? Schumpeter, the Tech Giants and Monopoly Fatalism written by a guy called uh, Ryan Bourne on the Cato website. So do check that one out. <laughs> um, I'll go back to some, who is he? Who is he? Who is that guy? Um, so I'm going to go back to um, some questions that are flying into me. Um, there's a question from uh, Nimai. I hope I'm uh, pronouncing that name correctly. Um, it's for Deirdre. Could you please speak to the relationship between income growth and happiness? Uh, the question says Adam Smith suggested that those aspiring to be rich were deluded about there being a positive linear relationship. And obviously, this is something that is much discussed in the economics literature as well. So how much of a link do we see between that income growth you talk about and actual happiness? Well, it turns out that the... Um that the, the early studies of this matter 
were incorrect. Not completely correct, but that, that this, this kind of exaggerated opinion that um, there are very sharply diminishing returns to uh, um, income growth in uh, aiding in happiness. Um, is that, that appears to be false. On the other hand, some it's true that probably Bill Gates, who can easily afford that uh, uh, 50,000 bottle of scotch that Eric was um, speaking about, um, doesn't get that much more pleasure than from a much less expensive bottle of scotch. But there, there, there's a kind of a misappropriation of these studies of happiness. I wrote an essay for the New Republic some years ago, attacking the whole idea of, 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 of measuring happiness. And the problem is that your happiness and mine are not on the same scale. It's not like, uh, uh, in fact, it is like, compare it this way, it is like lumping together a person whose temperature is measured on the Fahrenheit scale and someone whose temperature is measured on the on the uh, on the centigrade scale, and then adding them together and averaging them. Now this would obviously be stupid, but that's essentially what these national measures of happiness are about. And um, is there anyone here who would not be made happier if their income was increased a hundred percent? I vote for uh, that. I, and, and, and if you'll please all send 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 uh, your extra m money to me that's not doing anything for your happiness or buy the book by Art and me, um, I'll be happy. I'll be happier. And anyway, happiness is not our main point. It's scope in the sense that the ability to hear Mozart or to um, do the mass or to paint or something is, is, is that's what's at stake. Not whether or not your, um, your pleasure on a scale from one to three is 2.5 or one. I wrote this morning that we would probably sell more copies of the book if we named it something like let us run your lives or everybody dies instead of leave me alone and I'll make you rich because yeah. we have sort of a nearly something that I, I, I've noticed the other day is it seems like most public commentary is some variation on having finally identified everybody else's false consciousness that like, okay, you know, you just moved into a nice house, but you're not really happier. If you if you let yeah. me control you, if you let me control you, then I will make you I, I will make you really truly and rightly happy. I will make you happy in the way that you should be. 
And I, I find I find that this sort of presumption, this sort of presumption of control, um, a little bit off-putting. Um, <clears throat> and in, in thinking about some of the some of the points that Deidre made earlier about the family, um, of course, our final chapter in the book is about Adam Smith, and I'm wearing my my Adam Smith tie that I got for Christmas for my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, and uh, I'm coming to understand more and more Smith's arguments about what he, about local knowledge. And uh, of course, this is Carrie Hayek in the 20th century. Um, <clears throat> we're very, very limited in terms of our ability to know what is best for others. Um, yeah. <clears throat> if uh, and this here, just sort of parenthetically, like I think this is part of uh, part of the brilliance of, of or one of the things that, that has made Jordan Peterson so appealing is this whole like clean your room mantra. Um, and he's saying, like, if you can't keep your room, your your little segment of the universe clean and orderly, what makes you think that you can order the rest of society? And yeah. um, the to the to the extent that our book has has a, a pessimistic implication is that we are pessimistic about the ability of very smart, very educated, very erudite people such as ourselves to run the lives <laughs> of everybody else. Yeah. Uh, I'm from I'm from the government, and I'm here to make you happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does seem to be something that um, I remember. There was a lot of discussion about this in the early two thousands, but um, I guess events, dear boy, events have, have pushed this happiness agenda to the to the back burner for now. Um, yeah. Deirdre, I've got a quite specific question for you um, on the Great Takeoff. Uh, obviously, sure. innovation. It's a huge part, um, a huge driver of productivity growth and increases in living standards. I've got a question from Bob. Um, how important was patent law, patent law to the great enrichment and innovation? Zero. Um, and it, it was not important at all. Joe Mokir, McKelly, Bodrine, and others have shown that on the whole, patents, and I would add copyrights, have reduced innovation. It's the case that patents and copyrights were invented hundreds of years ago by the Venetians. And that ought to suggest to you that maybe if, if you want to find a source for monopoly, don't look to enterprise, look to states, the Venetian state in this case. But the problem is that once an idea has been produced, of course, its opportunity cost is zero. Once you know how to make uh, steel by blowing air through uh, uh, iron, um, as was invented in, in the 18, the 18, the 1850s, anyone can can do it, and from the economic point of view, should. So. The, 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 the counter argument, of course, is that somewhat, somehow you have to earn the money to 
do the research of how you blow air through iron. Um, but ordinary, um, the ordinary advantage, the, the, the ordinary first mover advantage is usually how individuals and companies get uh, uh, um, uh, their little profits. Um, and there, there are just numberless examples of this. Uh, where, you, you, where, where patents have stopped innovation. Actually, a, a early famous example is James Watt, who in 1780 acquired at great expense in Britain a patent on the separate condenser for the uh, steam engine, which is his most important innovation. The result of that was that innovation in steam was prevented for the length of his patent. Uh, lots of people suggested that you could have steam locomotives and steam boats, neither of which were permitted until his patent wore out in 1800. And then there was a burst of in, in, innovation. So no, intellectual property is on the whole an evil. Well, Deidre, you've convinced me, or you and Mokir and Boldrin and everybody, I've been convinced that that works in, in fact, I'm just not exactly convinced it works in theory. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but when you, look at, when you look at innovative firms and innovative sectors like retail, for example, yeah, yeah. Um, to the best of my knowledge, there's not really a whole lot of uh, there's not really a whole lot of, of intellectual property protection in retail, and yet it, it remains a dynamic sector. Um, sure, I think I think I think in this case the Watt example the Watt example is really important because of you know, Watt is, is is in many ways a hero for coming up with this this great innovation, but at the same time, he was able to take advantage of a set of institutions yeah. that in fact slowed down innovation. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I mean, actually on this ahead. point, um, sorry, Deidre. That's okay. Carry on. Onward. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, on this point, um, Terence, Terence Keeley has written a uh, a very interesting note for, for Cato recently called Innovative Economic Growth, Seven Stages of Understanding. And that that attempts theoretically to lay out a reason why uh, innovators, inventors might be willing to um, undertake extensive innovation, despite the fact um, that they might not have access to kind of monopoly profits in competitive markets. And he talks about the idea of a contribution good that, you know, you're willing you're willing to engage in certain types of research because that gives you access to the research of, of others. So markets do have ways of finding uh, mechanisms whereby the public good features of research can kind of be internalized by the researchers. But anyway, I'm getting down into the weeds. So uh, let, let's move back to some of the, the questions. Um, Got a question here from Hugo um, from Facebook, who says, "How can your version of capitalism defeat crony capitalism? 
Uh, how much, you know, is there a risk of the wealthier having more political power to drive policy in their interests? So I'll start with Art on this one. Mm -hmm. That I think is, is is a very big question and one that uh, if, if I'm going to be pessimistic about the future, it would be about um, so what Randall Holcomb has called political capitalism in a recent book. He argues that political capitalism is, is, is a separate and distinct system from capitalism or from socialism or uh, or what have you. And I don't know that there's a particularly good answer to that apart from really understanding constitutional political economy and in particular the role of the role of the ethical underpinning of the constitutional framework. So I've been doing a lot of reading of the of the 1986 Nobel laureate James M. Buchanan in recent years and I'm coming and I'm really coming to appreciate the role not just of rules prohibiting people from taking advantage of the state but also uh, sort of a set of ethical norms that uh, that also kind of makes that that makes that a little bit harder. Um, <clears throat> one of the major areas where I am a tad concerned is in the dynamism of the American labor market, which uh, is a little bit sclerotic in part because of problems related to occupational licensing. Um, here, though, to the extent that Deidre and I are preachers and we're we're preaching we're preaching what we, what we do believe to be good news. Um, it is with the hope of convincing the median voter that they don't need um, that that you don't need cosmetology licenses and barber licenses and hair braiding licenses and all, all all sorts of other other things like that. That I would hope is um, is how we would be able to push back against political capitalism. I. I I completely agree. It's unsurprising that Art and I agree that ideology ethics are really, really important. And that can be changed, we hope, with our our with our with our preaching. But so far as the capture of the state by elites is concerned, that's human history. That's mm -hmm. always been true. And there isn't, I think. A, a very good case to say that crony, crony capitalism is new or is some special danger for the for the for the future. To look, examine as uh, um, Sheila, forget her last name, has the the um, uh, the guilds in Europe were exactly uh, the seizure of the local state by the um, unfortunately named Ogilvy is her name. Sheila Ogilvy has done a very good job showing that these were monopolies. They weren't sweet training facilities, as some people on the left have argued. So one of the inevitable things that happens with these types of events is that um, they're eventually linked to contemporary events. And um, mm -hmm. because you guys are economists and, and you know, the impression of economists is that we really enjoy forecasting, uh, we get asked oh. questions about what's going to happen in the future. Um, so I'm going to frame this question in a slightly different way. Um, first of all, to you, Deirdre. Given what we know historically in terms of the impact of pandemics, how might we think about how 
COVID, the legacy of COVID in terms of a framework for a market economy, the role of, of government, and how does that fit into um, the, the the kind of model of free market innovation, you know, innovation that that you've written extensively about in the book? Where are we going to be, or where are we likely well, to be as a result? There is a danger that the uh, that that the plague will result in extensions of the power of the government. But in fact, I believe that the cases is especially very surprisingly in the Western the Western Pacific countries, um, South Korea, Taiwan. Australia, New Zealand, um, Japan to some degree, and then also China and Vietnam, but those functioning democracies, they controlled it. And they controlled it by using the power of the state early and decisively. And that's what we ought to have done in the United States. Uh, um, states, and that's not a recommendation for a massive e extension of the powers of the government. That it's a good idea to fight forest fires quickly before they get to be very, very big doesn't mean that we have to turn over the whole economy to the to the to the forest. Um, the forest fighters. I, I think there's probably going to be a substantial investment by drug companies in preparing for the next um, plague. And there's going to be a ne next plague. Thank God um, COVID is not like the Black Death in Europe which killed one third of the population. It also killed one third in, in China where it came from again. So I, 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 would, I don't think we're bound to have larger and larger governments, but, but as Art said, you have to preach these ideologies. Yeah, I think we're going to see a ratchet effect Sorry, go ahead. Well, no, no, go ahead. I think we're going to see a ratchet effect like the one that Robert Higgs identified after uh, in looking at World War One, the Great Depression, World War Two. Um, the state has assumed an enormous amount of power. Um, I think this this yeah. gives people have pointed out this kind of this kind of obviates the state power or the state capacity argument for growth. Uh, because if, if the COVID pandemic has shown us anything, it's that it's that Western states have enormous capacity to basically shut everything down. Um, yeah. I remain optimistic yeah. in that I, I uh, I'm, I'm bullish on Birmingham real estate, for example, you having again just just moved. Um, but I do th this 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 concerns me first because um, it's teaching people to fear. And teaching yeah. people again to sort of look to the state as their as their savior. And one prediction I have made that has actually sort of come true is seeing people seeing people argue that we should use the 
what we could use the COVID response as kind of a proof of concept and a practice run for how we need to address climate change. And yeah. uh, there, I worry that there, I worry that that this is going to be sort of like like Rexford Tugwell looking back at the War Industries Board during World War One and saying, "Oh yeah, this is totally how we should fight the Great Depression." Uh, people are going to look yeah. at the COVID lockdowns and say, "This is how we should fight. Uh, this is how we need to address climate change." Yeah, yeah, that, that's yeah, extremely interesting. And and actually, there is an economist who is pushing that mm -hmm. line of argument about climate lockdowns already. Somebody that you're very familiar with, Deirdre, Mariana Mazzucato had a, an article about that a couple of weeks ago. I'm very glad you mentioned that because uh, um, Berto Mingardi and I have just published a book against her, <laughs> I, uh, uh, against her enthusiasm for... Um, just what we're um, speaking of, a large state taking over innovation. She's a modern, not as smart version of John Maynard Keynes. See, you guys, you come for one book out, launch and you get two. Go out and buy book books, dears. They make <laughs> excellent Christmas gifts. Your your grandmother will be delighted in her lockdown <laughs> old age home to get both of these books. <laughs> Could not agree more. That's certainly, that's certainly true. Um, okay, we've got time for one more question. Um, and this one is on another relatively politically hot issue. Obviously, we had the 1619 project um, from the New York Times uh, fairly recently, um, that brought up the whole debate about the the extent to which the the role of slavery actually provided the foundations for a, a capitalist takeoff in the United States. Deirdre, this is something you've written about very extensively. So there's an anonymous question here, just asking, you know, what was the role of slavery in the development of capitalism? Did it actually uh, reduce the productive capacity of the economy? Was Did it uh, increase it? Was the, the foundation of the capitalist economy here based on that serve, yeah, exploitation and, and uh, slavery? Yeah, we, we have a chapter in the, in, the, in, the, in the very book we're speaking of on this, and we, we present briefly the evidence against the idea that slavery was foundational to what is unfortunately called uh, um, um, capitalism. And the, the arguments against it are just, against this hypothesis are just overwhelming. Um, if it were true that slavery was the key to enrichment, then Canada would be poor and the United States would be rich because Canada basically hasn't ever had any slavery. Slaves would escape to uh, 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 Canada, as you know, before the Civil War. Um, New Zealand, which didn't enslave the, the, the population of, of, of Maoris that it found there would be poor. Britain itself would be poor. Um, Britain, 
abolished slavery on the soil of Britain in, in completely in, in 1780, and it abolished with the United States the slave trade in 1807, and it abolished slavery in the empire in 1834. And if slavery were such a wonderful way to get rich, all Britain would be unspeakably poor now, and only the United States, with its uh, rather small slave population, would be rich if slavery were the way to wealth. Brazil, which imported, because it was much closer to Africa, imported vastly more slaves than were imported by the United States would be rich. And, uh, the, United, and the United States, which only imported a few and stopped in, uh, officially in 1807, would be poor. I mean, you can just go on and on. There's an East, East African slave trade, which was longer and as large West African trade. Most of the slaves in the Western Hemisphere come from, uh, from, from Western Africa. A great deal of the population of the Middle East has slave ancestors from East Africa, black slave ancestors. Slavery is characteristic of lots of societies, not all of them, but lots of them. The word slave, as you know, comes from Slav because the, the Golden Horde, the, the, the um, heirs of uh, Genghis Khan in the area north of the Black Sea were raiding the beginnings of, of Russia and exporting those people into the slave markets of Constantinople and then Istanbul. So slavery is not correlated. And then if you get into the details of the economics, as Art and I, as kind of observers of this, I don't think either of us has done, done the scientific work, but we have friends who have, friends and, and, and admired models, and they look into it and Slavery was not necessary for cotton. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on about this. It's not the case that cotton needed slavery. There were lots of free white people who grew cotton before the Civil War. And in 1807, shortly after the Civil War, cotton production in the South, now with free people, was equal to what it was in 1860. So there's the, the case, although it's very popular and makes us all feel guilty. Then, there, then there's one more point. If you feel guilty about that exploitation, and I, it was terrible and I wish it hadn't happened, uh, what about the exploitation of women through the ages? Do they need compensation now? What about the, uh, my ancestors? We can go back a thousand years. My Norwegian ancestors enslaved my Irish ancestors. There's a substantial amount of Irish genes in the population of, of Western Norway to this day. Now let's see, what do I do? Take from one of my purses and money and put it in the other? 
So you can see I'm very unhappy with this 1619 project. Not that I approve of slavery, I'm, ag I'm against it. Well, on that uh, less optimistic note, I will remind you this is an incredibly uh, optimistic book. Um, highly recommend going out and, and buying it today. And so it's leave me alone and I'll make you rich, how the bourgeois deal enriched the world. I apologize to all of you um, on any of our platforms, whether that be on the Cato website or Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, whose questions that I didn't get to. We have a hell of a lot of questions coming in and um, it's sometimes quite difficult for me as a moderator to be able to read through and select all of them. So I apologize if we didn't get to your question. Um, I, I wish that we could all be back um, with you in person at Cato and hopefully we will do soon. Um, and I know that uh, if we were able to, and if we weren't virtual today, we'd now be given uh, giving a huge round of applause and, and wishing our thanks to Deidre McCloskey and Professor Art Carden for spending their time with us. So thank you for being with us. Uh, have a great weekend.